All right, so good evening, everybody. And Chanukah Sameach. It's hard to believe it's, it's Chanukah, even though we've already been in the middle of it for several days. And we're up to the very last session of ours until January 27th. So I'm already in the state of, like, mourning. Because it, 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 it's something that I've really been looking forward to so much each week. And now I'll just have a lot... Yes, and that's that's how that's how two Samuel starts, right? And and it's it's gonna be it's gonna be hard being apart for that long, but I look forward of course to resuming come January twenty seventh. We're up to the point where King Saul has been killed in battle and now finally that whole story is just very, very sad. But now David is king. So as readers who are crazy about David, you have to be crazy about him at this point in time. We spoke about a lot that last time. We're now ready for him to assume the throne. Something big is going to happen. I think it was you, Norman, who raised the question of the first king not being from the tribe of Judah. And, and you're right. And so at least now we have a king from the tribe of Judah. God loves him. We're, we're, all, we're expecting very good things to happen, and we won't be disappointed for a while. And so we start off with source number one. Now that David is king, sometime afterward... David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? Meaning, what should be my capital? The Lord answered, yes. Okay, that was was specific. David further asked, which one shall I go up to? And the Lord replied, to Hebron. Quite honestly, this is one of those moments where you didn't need God's help. Where do you think he's going to make the capital of Israel? Hebron is the most important city in the Bible to this point. By far, you know, there are a couple of very, very distant rivals. But Hebron is where it's at. This is where Abraham bought the very first parcel of land ever. That's where he and Sarah are buried. That's where Isaac and Rebekah are buried. Jacob and Leah are buried over there. It was our very first ever home base. Plus, it's in territory of Judah. So, of course, David should pick his capital there. It's the obvious, obvious, obvious choice. But he inquires of God, and God gives him Hebron. Yes? Now, I have a question Oracular inquiry. Oracular inquiry. This is not prophecy. He went to the presumably he went to the high priest Urim Vitumim. Your your question's good. I read your mind. It's 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 weird how he does it. It's not the same thing as Moshe with the with the red phone. It's 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 a very different sort of relationship. Now here's the shocker of the book. There's many shockers in this book, and one of them is what we see right over here, continuing in this source. I dot, dot, dotted out a few verses. But Avner, son of Ner, Saul's army commander, had taken Ish-bosheth, son of Saul, and brought him across to Machanaim and made him king over Gilad, the Asherites, the Israel, Ephraim, and Benjamin, over all of Israel. That's not supposed to happen, folks. That's not supposed to happen. That's not supposed to happen. David is supposed to be king over all of Israel. Prophecy said that. We had been expecting this all along. And suddenly, out of nowhere, this Ishbosheth guy, which, by the way, it's, it's, it's a great name, right? It means man of shame. Lovely. That wasn't his real name, so that you know. That's his name and his authorized name throughout the book of Samuel. It's not his real name. His real name was Eshbaal. We find this out all the way in the book of Chronicles, which means Baal exists. Now, in the good old days, when King Saul was king, Baal was another nickname for God. Baal means master, kind of like Adonai. Baal was a perfectly acceptable form nickname for our God. But it also 
was the name of the Canaanite storm god. And once the Canaanite storm god became a real threat in Israel, people started to worship Baal, then the prophets didn't care for the name Baal anymore. So they actually, some prophetic editor struck out Eshbal from the book of Samuel. It became Ishbosheth, man of shame. But that was never his name. If you were walking down the street and said, hey, Ishbosheth, you would be executed for insulting the king. Right? That, he, he never went by that name. But the prophets, Eshbal. His name was Eshbal. Eshbal, okay? So that means Baal exists. But, but it referred to our God. It was a perfectly God-fearing name. What's shocking, though, is that Ishbosheth is now king over the majority of the people of Israel. That should never have happened. But of course, it was supposed to happen. But it, it's helpful to us, because now I can tell you the theme of the whole night. So I'm glad that Ishbosheth showed up just for this moment. King David's reign begins very turbulent and very unstable. That's very important for the author of the book of, Shmuel to, the book of Samuel to set out. His reign starts off, first of all, with all the Saul problems that we discussed last time. But even once he is king, there's a rivalry now. There's a divided monarchy. Nobody's sure how it's going to unfold. Then, thanks to David's righteous behavior, there is unity and peace. King David is able to bring everybody together and eventually is able to reign over all of Israel. And then he sins with Bathsheba, and boy, oh boy, oh boy, everything falls apart. This is a, des- a design by the prophet. The prophet wants us to, let, to understand the world is a very precarious balance, and so are the people of Israel. If you want peace and unity, first of all, you need to have that as your goal. And second of all, you've got to work really, really, really hard with incredible righteousness and dedication to the people. And then if you have that, you get it. And if you sin, it just goes, falls apart. And by the way, the very beginning of the Torah starts the same way. God's creation is founded on tohu vavohu. There's chaos, there is void. Then there's the Garden of Eden. But once Adam and Eve sin, well, things get a lot, lot more complicated. Right? So from the very beginning, the Torah likes this message very, very much. How there's, the starting premise is there's division. Righteousness brings Gan Eden, brings unity, brings this perfect state. But then sin messes everything up. As a theme literally running throughout the Bible, and the whole book of Samuel and the David story rest on that. So that's why you needed to have Ishbosheth be king. I mean... That's what happened. But the prophetic author was very interested in this point to show how David's reign began divided and unstable. What happens over the next couple of chapters is they start fighting with each other, the, the, northern, what, the northern and the southern kingdoms. Eventually, Ishbosheth's officers realize this guy is a total loser. No offense, Ishbosheth. Maybe a little. Total loser. He was a totally ineffective king. Avner, the general, was the power behind the throne, but there really wasn't much of a throne, and everybody eventually figured that out. So the officers assassinated him, chopped off his head, he's dead, the end. Let me just go for a little while. Question. Okay, so I love questions, but let me just go for a little while, because a lot needs to happen. So Ishbosheth is now dead, and once he is dead, the northern tribes realize, okay, we have a little bit of a pickle here, because we've been fighting against David, on the other hand, he's the only guy we got. So they accept him. And David becomes the king of all of Israel in chapter 5. That is a big moment. And in chapter 5, David does something amazing. Remember, he had inquired of God, what should my capital be? God answered, Hebron, like no-brainer city. Again, you don't need to be divine to figure out what needed to happen here. Now, David is king over all of Israel. 
And without asking God anything, he decides, I'm going to move my capital. He didn't talk to God about this one. He doesn't inquire. Here there's a real brainer situation. Here divine guidance sounds like a good idea. Because I wouldn't necessarily know, is it the right thing to move my capital from the place that is the most important historical thing and city in the whole country, by far, and that God said I should make my capital, and I'm going to move it. So what he does is, he figures he needs to make a gesture toward the tribe of Benjamin, because that's Saul's tribe. So his gesture is that pesky city of Jerusalem, which has no significance at all in biblical history to this point. Hmm? It hasn't mentioned a couple of times, but it has no relevance because it remained a Canaanite city. Nobody could conquer it. It's been mentioned a few times by this, by this stage in the game. But no stories are happening there because nobody goes there. It's a Canaanite city, more technically the Yibusi, one of the Canaanite nations. The Yibusi is there. Nobody was able to conquer it because it is on hills. It is a very well-fortified city. Nobody had a way of doing it. So King David decided, I'm going to do this. And the reason why King David can do anything like this is because of his nephew, who was a man named Yoav. Yoav was his general, and Yoav lived 3,000 years ago, and I personally am terrified of him now. <laughs> he is an, a truly... You, you really don't want to mess with him, ever. And, and again, he li- he's dead for 3,000 years. I have little likelihood of getting on his bad side. I don't care. I'm afraid of this man. Right? The, the, the laws of the Talmud, when they talk about the, the laws of the Ir Miklat, the cities of refuge, they try to explain how serious it is that when you're in there, if you've killed accidentally, you must remain in those cities until the high priest dies. The example that the Mishnah uses is, even in wartime, and you're Yoav, and the nation needs you more than anything, you still can't leave. Right? Even national security, you can't go out of it. That's the example that the Mishnah picks in terms of a tough guy who can help the people of Israel. There's nobody like Yoav. So Yoav seems to have gone through, scholars reconstruct it this way, what we now today call Warren's Shaft. He was able to enter the city through the water supply. He swam through the tunnel. I just picture him, you know, swimming, holding his dagger in his mouth, swimming away, holding his breath for like 20 minutes, whatever it took, getting in there. This is the best scholarly reconstruction to date to explain how the city was actually taken. Then he climbs on into the city, and then Trojan horse story without the horse, right? Then he just goes to the guards at the gate, kills them, no, no fuss, no muss, opens up gates, and then David and army roll right in there, and they capture the city like that. Brilliant. But only Yoav can do a thing like that. Only Yoav. There's nobody, there's nobody in the world who can take Jerusalem like Yoav can. And then David, all by himself, after sacking the city, moves the capital there. He builds a palace. It's Israel's first palace, by the way. He decides to move his capital to Jerusalem. And it sits on the border between Benjamin and Judah, the two tribes. David's home tribe of Judah and Saul's tribe. And Malbim in the 19th century, he doesn't invoke this terminology, but he's absolutely right. King David created the world's first Washington, D.C., which also sat in between two states as a means of bringing them together. David wanted to create the capital of Israel on neutral turf between the two kingly tribes in order to make peace in between them. And he did that without divine authorization. But boy, oh boy, did God approve. So, so far, just to keep score, because this is amazing, monarchy, which is what David happens to represent at the moment, was founded by the people and God then approved. 
right? Big deal number one of our book is monarchy. It was people initiated and God approved. Now David moves capital from divinely ordained Hebron with all that history and moves it to Jerusalem and God approves. And now not only does he move the capital there by building his palace, he wants to make God's home there too. So for that you need the ark. And so the ark, which has been inactive for a little while because of some mishaps that we did not discuss where people died and stuff. It was really messy. David decides it's time to move the ark from Kiryat Yarim to Jerusalem. And that will make it the religious capital of Israel as well. And so they put it on a wagon. They dance. They sing. One poor fellow named Uzad dies in the process also because he touched the ark by, by mistake. Terrible disastrous story in a non-survey situation we would have a lot to talk about. But in a survey situation, the point is, okay, mishap, then David fixes the course, gets the ark to Jerusalem, and dances up a storm. And everybody's dancing up a storm. They're having a great big party. The ark makes it to Jerusalem. Everybody is thrilled. And then the camera shifts over to the palace where Queen Michal, King Saul's daughter, we talked about her last week, is watching David from the window. And this brings us to source number two. As the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him for it. You have to understand, David wasn't wearing a lot, and so leaping and whirling was exposing a lot of himself. And so that's what Michal, Michal is disgusted. She's royalty. She grew up in a king's house. She is a princess. She married a superhero. King David is the one who killed Goliath. She had every reason to love him. But at this moment, she sees nothing but disgust. She sees David degrading himself. And she says, that's not how a king behaves. So David, after blessing everybody, comes home in a great mood. He then comes home, right? Verse 20. David went home to greet his household. And Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said... Didn't the king of Israel do himself honor today? You can hear the sarcasm even in the English, right? Exposing himself today in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects as one of the riffraff might expose himself. She is disgusted with him. And she lets him know. She feels that this was a terrible blow to the monarchy by, by dancing and singing. And Dancing and singing is fine. It's just he was exposing himself a lot. David answered Michal. It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his family and appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will dance before the Lord and dishonor myself even more and be low in my own esteem. But among the slave girls that you speak of, I will be honored. David says, Michal, you just don't get it. I'm the king of Israel. An ancient Near Eastern king, there's royalty, there's dignity, there's all the pomp. But I'm standing before the king of kings. I'm standing before God. Before God, I'm a regular person like everybody else. And I'm religiously happy. So I'm going to dance, and I'm going to do it again tomorrow if I have the occasion. You don't understand, Michal. God rejected your father. Your father had lots of dignity. David has some dignity too, don't worry. But before God, there is no room for somebody else being a king. It's a beautiful moment, actually. Rambam codifies this verse into halakha. When he talks about religious joy, he says David had it right. right. He talks about it with, with Sukkot, with love and etrog. The idea is that this is, this is true religious joy. But then we find out that this created a fallout in the marriage. So to her dying day, Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children. This is very, first of all, just on a personal level, this is a very sad moment. I, f- I feel very bad for the marriage, right? Here, Michal, the young princess who fell in love with the military hero, who killed the giant... And now she's looking out the window and she sees, ugh, 
man, did I make a bad choice for a shidduch, right? This is disgusting. And she yells at him, he fires back, and this breaks down the marriage. They don't have any children. On a local level, it's just a very strong human story. On a national level, something critical just happened here. This is where Saul's dynasty doesn't have a chance anymore. Right? Saul's dynasty is done. David and Michal don't have children. Well, those children can't be kings. And if they're not kings, that means David has to find somebody else. So on a global level, that's a big deal. This is the moment in time where Saul's dynasty is officially done. And something else happens, which is now there's a job opening for somebody who's going to become Bathsheba. David has other wives, but evidently wasn't slating their children to be king. Or at least there was, there was suddenly room for another important queen to come into the picture. And so it opens up that important thing. So chapters 1 through 6, David establishes Jerusalem as the new political capital and the new religious capital of the people of Israel. There's now an official breakdown with the Saul dynasty. It's now over. Michal is done. And David realizes, well, if I have my own palace, and I have the religious capital, and I have the ark, there's one thing that's missing. We need a temple. So David comes up with this idea. Source number three. When the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord granted him safety from all the enemies around him, and the king said to the prophet Natan, Here I am dwelling in a house of cedar, while the ark of the Lord abides in a tent. Okay, he doesn't say it outright. Hey, is it okay if I build a temple? But it's pretty clear what he's saying, right? He's like, I have this nice building over here, and the ark is still in a little tent. I want to build God a home. Natan said to the king, go and do whatever you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. This is the first time that we meet the prophet Natan, actually. And Natan says what you and I and anybody would say, which is... Of course, who better? You've killed Goliath. You're prophetically ordained to be the king. You are so righteous. He's at the top of his game. He's bringing peace to the country. He's defeating the enemies. He's unified the country. He brought the ark. He's obviously qualified to build the temple. So Natan doesn't even ask God, even though that's his job, right? He's a prophet. He doesn't inquire of God. He doesn't find out what prophecy has to say. He just speaks as a human being. So Natan says, sure, go right ahead. And we would have said the same thing. And the reason why the narrative needs to do this is because it's so obvious that David should build the temple if he wants to. It's, you know, he's asking another no-brainer question. But this time God pulls a fast one on him. It's not, in, it's not in the text that I have in front of you, but you can read on in the chapter where God sends Natan back in there and says, Natan, you go back in there. The answer is no. I'm still shocked to this day that God said, no, I can't believe it. And, it. and the text doesn't give any reason, by the way. Right, what many of us are thinking, what are you talking about? He shed a lot of blood. He did, he was a warrior and everything. That explanation appears all the way in the book of Chronicles. And it's an important discussion to have in an in-depth class also. But in the book of Samuel, there is no clear reason given at all why David can't build it other than God said no. But God said, no, I'm still shocked by all of this. The two shockers of all time. How come Moshe couldn't just lead his people into the land? And how come David couldn't build the temple? Those are the top two questions, right? There are other good ones, like why bad things happen to good people. But that's, a, that's a problem that just our religion created. Right? It's a paradox within our religion. We'll talk about that when we get to the book of Job. Mark your calendar for ballpark next March, okay? Or, so, or somewhere, somewhere around there. We'll, we'll get there. But for, for today, I don't want to talk about why bad things happen to good people because it's an important question, but not our question tonight. What is our question is, here, God could have said yes. 
but he obviously didn't want David to build the temple. So that's the next part of the discussion here, verse 12. We're in source 3, verse 12. When your days are done and you lie with your fathers, mean when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own issue, and will, I will establish his kingdom, kingship. And you're going to have a dynasty. It will be the first true dynasty of Israel. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his royal throne forever. So this is the person that you and I know to be Solomon. Right? Solomon's not even born yet. But God is promising that David will have a son, this son will build the temple, and his dynasty will last forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will chastise him with the rod of men and the affliction of mortals. Meaning, he still has to behave himself. He still has to be a righteous king. But I will never withdraw my favor from him as I withdrew it from Saul, whom I removed to make room for you. Saul sinned, and so God fired Saul. That's it. That was the end of him and his dynasty. That won't happen to you, David. If your descendants sin, they'll get punished. They're still accountable for their actions. But they will remain kings. This, by the way, this is a, good, this is a topic, great shiur in its own right. Well, you know, come 586 BCE, 400 plus years after this promise, the Davidic dynasty stopped. And that wasn't supposed to happen. Because right? here it sounds like your dynasty is going to last forever. This was a huge crisis of faith which has played out beautifully and painfully through many destruction of temple era biblical books. Because in other words, this stopped being true. So the prophet Jeremiah who lived then, who had to deal with all of this, his prophecy was what I imagine many of us could surmise on our own. God's promise to the Davidic dynasty is eternal, even if there isn't currently a king on the throne. And that's why we continue to pray for the restoration of the Davidic kingdom. We don't pray for a king. We're interested in the Davidic line coming back. And that's predicated on Jeremiah's understanding of this prophecy. Jeremiah's understanding was God's promise to the Davidic line actually is eternal, even if currently, for the last 2,600 years, we haven't had, just about to the T, by the way, I think, it's, I think we recently celebrated or, or mourned our 2,600th anniversary of not having a king from the house of David on the throne. It's 586 in 2015, and don't forget there's no year zero. So I think the math sort of works out that it was just about, it's just about 2,600 years exactly that we haven't had a king, but we continue to pray for a king. So that's the short answer to a much bigger question that I think is very important. But for our purposes now, this is a very rosy prophecy, that David won't build the temple, his son will. There's going to be an eternal covenant with the house of David. And even if they sin, they, the, the deal is forever. Your house and your kingship shall, be ever, shall ever be secure before you. Your throne shall be established forever. This is great. I'm in such a good mood right now. I'm sure you are too. David is doing it all right. And by the way, if you're now keeping score, let's think about the three big innovations of the book of Samuel. Kingship, move of capital to Jerusalem, and temple were all human-initiated things. And God approved of all of them. It's amazing how the book of Samuel rigs things. It would have been so easy to have God command any of that stuff, right? But no, God didn't command these things. These were human-initiated activities. The kingship was established by the people, much to poor Samuel's chagrin. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And now David establishes the capital in Jerusalem and, is, and at least paves the way for there to be a temple. They're all human-related things. So David is doing great stuff. And then the next couple of chapters are just victor military victories, beating off all the enemies that had been harassing the people of Israel for centuries because we were defenseless. Suddenly we have a king and we have defense, which means... The people, when they went to Samuel, were right. 
They say, we need a king because we, we can't d- defend ourselves against our enemies. We need an army. We need an infrastructure. We need somebody who's going to unify the country. David is all of that. The people were right. This is extremely beneficial to the, co- to the country. There's peace. There's an eternal dynasty in place. We're getting ready to build the temple. It's very close to what a messianic era is supposed to look like. Right? Everything is in place. Everything is good. Almost everything is good because, you know, it, it, didn't, it didn't last. Chapter 10, Yoav the general, it's not in the source sheets, but in chapter 10, Yoav the general takes troops north to go battle against Ammon, one of the descendants of the, of the person named Lot, Abraham's nephew. There's a war going on with Ammon, and Yoav does that. There's a national story in, in play. The end of chapter 12 continues that story, which is Yoav beats Ammon, And then he quickly sends messengers to David saying, David, you need to come quickly. I basically beat them already. You just need to show up to put on the finishing touch so everybody will give you credit. Yoav was a very loyal general. Tough, tough man. You don't want to mess with him. But he's an extremely loyal general and he really is looking out for the best of David and the kingdom. So he tells David, look, I can easily get credit here. I'm, I'm the victorious general. I'm up here. You're down in Jerusalem. But if you come now, you'll get all the credit. So David quickly hustles on up there, finish, deals the final blow to Ammon, and then he gets this crown, which weighs a ton. It weighs a lot of money. I think like a, hundred, a lot of pounds, like 135 pounds, which means, among other things, King David had a very strong neck. <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, assuming, assuming that the weight is somewhere between 45 and 135 pounds, depending on, depending on what you consider a talent. Scholars debate these sort of weights and measures. But whatever it is, it was a very hefty crown with lots of jewels. And so the national story is, David has defeated yet another enemy that's been bothering Israel for a long time. He comes home, and you can just imagine the victory parade as he comes wearing this enormous, gorgeous, elaborate crown that will now be the crown of David. And everybody's cheering you know, waving their bandanas in the windows, whatever they did back then to make kings happy and to cheer on their troops for risking their lives and for coming back victorious. That's the national story here, the battle against Ammon. Yoav is up north with his troops. David comes at the very tail end of the whole thing. But see, most of the time, David wasn't up there. He was down here. He was down in Jerusalem. And on one pleasant, balmy evening, he decided to take a stroll on his balcony. Never do that, at least not if you're the king and you're overlooking all the other homes. And unfortunately, on this particular day, sheerly by accident, uh, David just chanced upon a woman who was bathing. He saw a woman bathing while he was standing on his own balcony. And this changed David's life, his family's life, and the kingdom's life forever. Right? Anybody who thinks that David got away with this is, is out of his gourd. David did not get away with this episode at all. And what I appreciate about this story, I appreciate, I mean, it's hideous and disgusting and nauseating. There's a lot of things to not like about it. I appreciate the sheer honesty of the Bible. In fact, if I had to pick one chapter in the Bible that demonstrates the absolute integrity of the prophets, it's this one. Because we're dealing with not some righteous person sinning. We're dealing with an astoundingly righteous person who has written psalms that we continue to recite to this day, right? who is the founder of the Davidic dynasty, because he happens to be David, the eternal dynasty of Israel. The Messianic king comes from his line, the one who has established Jerusalem as the internal capital. We have an awful lot of love for this person named David. But if he sins, the prophets will get you. Right? The prophets don't care that you are that beloved person. The prophets care about, are you faithful to the Torah, and are you faithful to God or not? And nobody is above that, not even David. 
That's what I love about this story, even though it's a very painful story in every other regard. But it demonstrates the absolute integrity of the Bible. You really see these prophets were as true as true can be. There was no politics here. Right? And so here we go, source number four. At the turn of the year, the season when kings go out to battle, David sent Yoav with his officers and all Israel with him, and they devastated Ammon and besieged Rabbah. David remained in Jerusalem, which is perfectly normal. Kings didn't always go to their battles. Right? You go to some battles, but after all, sometimes you don't want to put the king at risk. The king has to run the country, and if the king gets killed, chas v'shalom, it's obviously such a nightmare for the, for the nation. But he remains in Jerusalem, and that sets the stage for the private story. Late one afternoon, verse 2, David rose from his couch and strolled on the roof of the royal palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and the king sent someone to make inquiries about the woman. He reported, she is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite. All right, so what, on, on, if you've you never heard of these people before, okay, here's who she's related to, right? She's a married woman named Eliam. All right, all the way in chapter 23, it's not in your source sheets, but in chapter 23, we find out about, that Dave, there's a list of David's heroes, military heroes. On the list of these heroes are a man named Eliam and another man named Uriah Hachiti. This, this Uriah right here. In other words, they were both, her father and her husband are both of, of the 37 top soldiers in David's regime. They're two of those 37. Right? These were fabulous, brave, loyal heroes of Israel that have been doing wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things. Another little bonus, to just sweeten the pot a little bit, is that David's chief advisor was a man named Achitophel. And Achitophel had a son whose name was Eliam. So it could well be that this woman, Bathsheba, is the wife of one of David's top heroes, the daughter of another one of David's top heroes, and the granddaughter of David's chief advisor. So it's not just a pretty woman taking a bath. It's somebody who's extremely well-connected. You know, living in, look, look where she lives. She lives, talk about prime real estate, next to the palace, right? She, they're, they're doing very well. These are very prominent people in the community. And David sees her and gets this information. And then he still acts. Verse four, David sent messengers to fetch her. She came to him and he lay with her. She had just purified herself after her period. She just had gone to the mikvah. Isn't that an amazing verse to have here? Talk about out of nowhere stuff. The reason why it's mentioned in all likelihood is because this would, first of all, make her very likely or likelier to be fertile, to be able to get pregnant. Right? It's not just a random detail about her Tarada Mishpacha experience that she happens to go to the mikvah here. It also guarantees that her husband is not the father of the baby that's going to be growing inside of her. Right? In other words, if she went to the mikvah, that means she had her period. So she's not pregnant from her husband. She's not pregnant at the moment. So those are two very important details of why, why this needs to be mentioned here. And she went back home. Our commentators debate at great length, was Bathsheba a willing partner in all of this? It is difficult to tell. It sounds like she's very passive in the story. And it sounds like, among other things, she doesn't necessarily have a chance to say no. What do you want? The king's guards are at your door and say, come to the king. You come to the king. So the majority view already in the Talmud is that we have to view this as a halachic rape. Now, Bathsheba is a victim of this story. It's not that she was hoping that David would spot her bathing or something like that. 
Solomon Schechter in the Cairo Geniza found some unpublished midrash that actually said that she was hoping that, you know, she, she tried to time her baths to da- David's strolls. So maybe, maybe he'll, he'll take notice, but that's, that, that view doesn't, doesn't really get a lot of traction. The narrative seems to take for granted that Bathsheba is a passive player in all of this, and she's a victim of David's overwhelming lust. Verse 5. The woman conceived, and she sent word to David, I am pregnant. In Hebrew, it's hara anochi. Right? Which means I am pregnant. Those are the only two words she says the whole time. Right? Her role in the story is to just send, you know, it's like, a, you know, send a, send a tweet. Hara anochi. Right? It's one little, and you have plenty of letters left for, for this kind of thing. Right? It's a very small note. And Bacheva is trying to signal to David, it's like, look, I'm pregnant. And several months, I'm going to be showing. And several months, my husband is still going to be north of the country, and everybody will know I'm pregnant from somebody else. This, these are all the words that she isn't saying, but David understands only too well. And people will start to buzz about the scandal of Bathsheba, that she's pregnant. And don't forget, David, you sent some guards over. Somebody knows something. Some people might have seen me entering the palace at night. This could be found out. David, you need to figure out what to do before I show my pregnancy. You got a couple of months here. Get going. Right? Now David, by the way, could send her down the river. He has all the power. He could just say, deny anything. And Bathsheba can be lynched by the mob, big scandal, her life is ruined. It doesn't have to get back to him. But David decides he better he better do something about it. And this sets off a chain reaction that is a total disaster, one disaster after another. What David says Verse 6, Thereupon David sent a message to Yoav, Send Uriah the Hittite to me. And Yoav sent Uriah to David. So all of a sudden, in the middle of a fierce battle, one of your top warriors is up there. Word comes from the king, Send me my hero right now. So it better be really important, right? Not to David. You better believe it's very important. All, Uriah, all David has to do is get Uriah to go home. And make sure that some people see that. Right? That's all he needs from Uriah. He'll just go home, stick it out for the night, and then go back to the battlefront. Bathsheba will talk to her neighbors about how, wow, my husband surprised me. He came back from the battlefront. We were together. And then if she's pregnant a couple months later, everybody will say, what a blessing, Bathsheba. Wow, that one night that your husband came back from the front, and lo and behold, Bishatova. That's, what, that's all David needs for any of this to, to, to work. And then the scandal's done. This was easy. Use your royal powers to make things happen. Tell your general to send back this top hero, even though now he's not available at the front. It doesn't matter. It's well worth it. So verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and bathe your feet. Literally means take a bath, but obviously David is counting on a lot more happening than just a bath, right? When Uriah left the royal palace, a present from the king followed him. So Uriah starts to go. And David is like, yes, this is, this is working. He's going to go home. He'll be with his wife. Touchdown. Nobody will ever accuse, you know, nobody will ever accuse anybody of anything. But Sheva's cleared. I'm cleared. The scandal's done. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the royal palace along with the other officers of his lord and did not go down to his house. Oh, way to ruin that one. He won't go home. He's, he walks out of the king's presence and, he's, and, he, and he lies down and sleeps with his buddies over, you know, obviously also, you better believe those guards at the gate, these are crack commandos. These are the best of the best, the royal guard. Uriah, they all know each other. Uriah belongs with these people. These are the heroes of Israel. 
When David was told that Uriah had not gone down to his house, he said to Uriah, you just came from a journey. Why didn't you go down to your house? Go see your wife. That's what every soldier would like to do, right? They're stuck up there for months. It's horrible, right? So my family's away for five days. I'm, I'm miserably lonely. It's horrible, right? I mean, it's, I mean I'll join them on Friday, but, 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 but all, the, all the same. This is months and months and months. This is a terrible thing. Go home. Uriah answered David, bless him, right? The ark in Israel and Judah are located at Sukkot. My master Yoav and your majesty's men are camped in the open. How can I go home and eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As you live, meaning I swear by your life, by your very life, I will not do this. Uriah is just about the greatest person I've ever met. Maybe even like up there with Jonathan. Right? David's right. Talk about integrity. So this is, you know, you just want to cry. It's like not only is David committed adultery with somebody's wife. Not only is this a hero's wife, but this hero is the nicest and most loyal and faithful and good person ever. He's so pure and so excellent and so dedicated to all the right things. So he won't even go home. He feels wrong going home to his wife while all of his comrades he sleeps with, he risks his life with every day. They're out there fighting and giving their lives and I'm just getting the day off? I don't think so. I can't take the day off. He can't do it. It's amazing how pure this is. It's sort of, I think, yeah. And David did do that. He, he abstained, or he abstained from being with his wife, so he David did not do abstain. Correct. So you have that irony. You have the other irony, which somebody mentioned last week. I thought very, very well. I think what you just said was fabulous, but I think even more, Uriah is the David of this story, and David is becoming the Saul. Right? David was pure, loyal, faithful, doing every... I mean, that's why we all love him so much. He was so excellent. And Saul's hurling spears at his head and chasing him around with the army. Talk about royal abuse of power and going after the nicest person in the world. All of a sudden, David is the Saul. It certainly has that risk. And in this case, that's what's happening. He's abusing his royal powers and he's now taking advantage of somebody we find out is astoundingly lovable. There's even one horribly bonus irony to all of this, which is, the man's name is Uriah the Hittite. What, what exactly is that supposed to mean? What's a Hittite? They're part of the tribes that we were supposed to get out of. Yeah, so the Hittites are one of the seven Canaanite nations that were supposed to be dispossessed because they're immoral. Is he Jewish? Well, most of our sages assume yes. The name Uriah is a very Jewish name. You know, the light of God. And it sounds like he's a naturalized Israelite. But the fact that he's still called a Hittite means that either he had Hittite roots or he lived in a territory that used to belong to the Hittites, that was some kind of neighborhood. There's a minority, minority opinion, including Rambam's son, who thinks that he's still not Jewish, which, which is very, very interesting for piles of reasons. But I don't want to deal with any of those piles right now. What I've got to deal with is the more basic irony, which is here you have David, the king of Israel, Behaving like what the Canaanites used to be like. And here you have this Canaanite fellow who's behaving like the best Israelite could possibly behave, if he in fact is a Hittite, or even that there's supposed to be some kind of allusion to that. It's just about as ironic and awful as it goes. So we're in a very bad place in this story, and it's only going to get worse because Uriah refuses to go home. David gets him drunk, but he still has his wits about him and still won't go home. Even though he's drunk as a skunk, it doesn't matter. So David realizes it's not going to work. He's not going home. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Yoav, which he sent with Uriah. 
ironic, right? Uriah is so trustworthy that he's going to bear with him a sealed death warrant for Uriah. And David knows that there is a zero chance that Uriah will suspect anything or open it. Right? He's sending his death warrant. And Uriah is going to be the messenger, messenger for this. He wrote in the letter as follows, Place Uriah on the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then fall back so that he may be killed. What a terrible plan. Yoav, here's the battle strategy. You all storm the wall, and then at the count of three, everybody else runs away, and you just leave Uriah alone, and he'll be killed. Well, that'll do it. That'll get him dead. And now David is working on plan B. Plan A was, the more elegant solution, send Uriah home for a night, problem solved. Okay, that failed. Next plan, get him killed as quickly as possible in a legitimate way. I mean, they are fighting against Amman. People get hurt in wars. And then marry Bathsheba. That's plan B. And then she gets pregnant. Okay, everybody will say it's from David. Mazal tov. Hooray for the king. Plus, David comes out smelling like a rose. Your hero gets killed, and the king himself takes personal responsibility for the widow. Right? He's going, to look, he's going to look terrific. What a, what a great chesed situation here. So David's plan B at least will work, but that also means at the cost of Uriah's life. Verse 16. But Yoav can't do that, because Yoav is a great general. And no great general ever orders its, all of his troops but one to run away and let one of their men die. So Yoav doesn't... Yoav gets it. Yoav is a smart cookie. David wants Uriah dead. I will see to it that he is dead. But there's no way in the world I'm going to tell my other troops to abandon him. We can't do that. Not to mention all the other troops will say, why did you do that? Right? Talk about a terrible order. And so Yoav mixes it up a little bit. So when Yoav was besieging the city, he stationed Uriah at the point where he knew there were able warriors. He'd simply put him in the most dangerous spot in the front. The men of the city sallied out and attacked Yoav, and some of David's officers among the troops fell. Uriah the Hittite was among those who died. Okay, meaning now, talk about snowballing. It started off with a benign solution to the adultery and the affair, which is send Uriah home. Okay, that failed. Plan B, get Uriah killed as quickly as possible, which already is terrible, poor Uriah. But now Uriah and many of the other heroes are killed also, because Yoav correctly understood he couldn't really do what David wanted. So Yoav sends a message back to David that Uriah is dead. And Uriah swings into action. David, excuse me, Uriah is not going to swing into any more action ever. David is going to swing into action. His action, verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah was dead, she lamented over her husband. She sat Shiva, or did whatever mourning practices they did back then. After the period of mourning was over, David sent and had her brought into his palace. She became his wife and bore him a son. The Lord was displeased with what David had done. That turns the story around, right? That's the difference between prophetic narrative and what happens in the world, right? David abuses his power, and he's covered up the scandal perfectly. Not in the way that he wanted. He didn't want Uriah to die. He didn't want these other soldiers to die. But at the end of the day, he marries Bathsheba. She gives birth. Everybody correctly surmises, this is David's son. They don't realize it's David's son from the time when... Bathsheba was still married to Uriah, they, they, they wouldn't know that. But David has completely covered up the scandal. Plus, again, the public probably thinks that he's even better than they thought of him before. He married his hero's widow. What a great man. He is a great man. From the outsider's perspective, this is terrific. But the Lord was displeased. This is the first time that God shows up in the narrative. Right? God is displeased. And when God is displeased, he has to send his prophet. And this turns around the entire the entire story, because suddenly prophecy is involved. And again, the integrity of prophecy is at its all-time finest right here. Source 5. 
The Lord sent Natan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in the same city, one rich and one poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had only one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He tended it and grew up together with him and his children. It used to share his morsel of bread, drink from his cup, and nestle in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him, so sweet, such a fuzzy little sheep. And this poor man, it's his one little, one little sheep. One day a traveler came to the rich man, but he was loath to take anything from his own flocks or herds to prepare a meal for the guest who had come to him. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, actually, what Natan is doing is doing what people did in ancient Israel and in other countries, too. You go to the king for justice. One of the jobs of the king was to be the supreme justice in the land. In this case, Natan comes and presents a legal case. We all know that this is fictional, right? Natan wasn't really talking about a rich man and a poor man. What is he talking about? He's talking about Uriah and David, that David is the rich man and Uriah is the poor man. And David can marry any woman he wants. He's the king. And he took the beloved wife of Uriah, the poor man in this story. But, so why doesn't Natan just come in to David and say, David, you think that God doesn't know what you just did? You committed adultery. You had Uriah killed off. Other soldiers have died. You're a terrible sinner. Why couldn't Natan just do that? Why does he come in with this little trick? Which works very nicely, I must say. You're right, but how so? Yeah, well, what would his reaction be? Yeah, what David? He what didn't he, have the guts to tell it to my <laughs> Is the truth? There's also another benefit that he gets. He's asking David to judge. So David is actually going to judge himself, and then there's no escape. If God judges David, David can start saying. Well, it was somebody else's fault. There are other circumstances. What people do. It's very easy to rationalize if somebody is accusing you of something. Even if it happened. Even if David can't deny the charges, you could try to tone it down a little bit. But by asking David to judge this fictional rich man, when David judges him, he's able to, he gets David to judge himself. And he judges himself very strongly. The law, by the way, the Torah gives laws for this sort of thing. If you steal somebody's sheep in Torah law, and you slaughter it up and serve it for dinner, you must return four times the value of the sheep. That's the law. So David knows that law too. And so he, verse 5, David flew into a rage against the man and said to Natan, As the Lord lives, I swear to God, the man who did this deserves to die. He shall pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and showed no pity. So he says the law also, which is he owes four times the sheep. But he throws in death penalty, which only a king can do. He's using his royal prerogative as judge to go beyond the letter of the law because he is disgusted by the behavior of this rich man. I am. But yeah. Because I'm thinking the later laws dealing with prohibited relationships. Now, in that case, I don't know if. Married women women are part of that prohibited relationship. All right. Yeah. But more importantly, is not that he had the affair with her, but he committed murder. 
Yeah, Even both. If he didn't do it himself. Both. So I think the real sin lies there. And why not say? Why not say both? In the story you just told, I agree. The I, I agree. But but why not say both? He committed two grievous sins here. One is called adultery, and one is called murder. The, right. The second one seems to be okay. You, you, but heavier, if you will. I mean, more... They're both pretty awful, and they're like the two worst things in terms of interpersonal relationships that one can do. If you think about the three cardinal sins in Jewish tradition, right? Meaning that even if somebody says, do this or I shall kill you, you're supposed to die. It's called Yehareg Val Yavor. This is later rabbinic law, putting, putting this thing in. So David is not thinking that way. But everybody understood that the three top sins that one could commit are murder, adultery, idolatry. What's crazy about the stories of David and Solomon is that David here is guilty of two of those three, and Solomon's going to be guilty of idolatry down the line, right? The founders of the permanent Davidic dynasty, the builder of the temple himself, and they do some fabulous things too, but their sins that are are pinned on them are the three worst sins that any Israelite, or for that matter, any human being can do. And that's obviously very jarring. Again, Kudos to the total integrity of our prophets for telling these stories. I'm amazed that they tell these stories. Nobody in the ancient world, and frankly, how many spin doctors are there in today's world? There's lots of spin doctors. I love reading books. I'm always amazed when contemporary scholars write about David's spin doctors. I'm like, are you serious? Are you serious? Spin doc- what are you this is, the most, this is the most astoundingly honest thing you could possibly... There's no spin doctor here. This is prophecy saying David did something very bad. So are. After committing adultery... In an ideal world, Uriah would have gone home, problem solved. So David still has committed one terrible sin. Assuming that has already not worked, like, is there like a, a place of salvaging that? David, what, what David could have done is gone through with it and been scandalized. Right? In other words, he could have let Bathsheba go to term and hope to the high heavens that nobody ever finds out that David is associated with it. He wasn't willing to take that risk. Now, that, that would have brought him down. I mean, that would have been a very bad day for the kingdom. It's already a bad day for the kingdom. But this would, have, from a political point of view, if the populace says he's, he's raping our hero, one of his heroes' wives while the hero is away, we, this guy can't be king. I mean, this is a disaster. So David doesn't want the scandal, and therefore he becomes desperate. So the simple solution, maybe you could think of a different solution. David couldn't think of any better solutions. David thought, if he won't go home, I have to get him dead and marry Bathsheba as quickly as possible. That's the only thing he could think of. I can't think of anything better for him. Maybe there's something better. Kenny? Yeah, so you, you talk about, you always tell us that we should read backwards and forwards. Yes. So now I go back to the Mikhail story. And I reread that chapter, and I read it with completely different thoughts about David is dancing his whole persona, what Mikhail sees in him, what she's experiencing what she experiences, and then what then occurs. Yeah, I don't think it's it's crazy. Look, what we can say is David is an astoundingly passionate man. Passionate has a very good side to it, and also has a very dangerous side to it, right? And the the stakes are very high. Here's where you see the downside of being this passionate. The Talmud says it very very brilliantly. It talks about how the greater a chacham you are, the greater sage you are, the greater yetzer hara you have, the greater evil inclination you have. That's referring to this sort of passionate, you know, somebody who's so committed and so intense and all of those things, that's, it's, these are all great ideals to be. The prophets are all that too. But if it's not contained and kept in very high degrees of check, and especially as Robert mentioned before with power, power obviously gave David the wherewithal to be able to do all of these things. It certainly increases the odds of bad things happening. So, what about you all? Let, 
let, let me just go because I'm, I'm running low on time. And Yoav is a major player in this story, and the Talmud discusses that. But that's, that's secondary to the big story, which is Natan having David right where he needs him. Verse 7, Natan said to David, that man is you. You're the rich man. In Hebrew, it's just ataha'ish, which just became, in my mind, the two greatest words ever said in the Bible, right there. You have a prophet of God looking at the most beloved person in our history, who is the king, went to boot, who has all the power in the world, at least within the country. And he just says, you're that rich man. Natan just looks him in the eye and, and says it straight, and it's, it's fabulous. Thus said the Lord, the God of Israel, it was I who anointed you king over Israel, and it was I who rescued you from the hand of Saul, you ingrate. I gave you your master's house in possession of your master's wives, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that were not enough, I would give you twice as much more. Look how much I've done for you, says God. Why then have you flouted the command of the Lord and done what displeases him? You have put Uriah to the sword. You took his wife and made her your wife and had him killed by the sword of the Ammonites. You're guilty of murder and you've taken his wife. Therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you spurned me by taking the wife of Uriah the Hittite and making her your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will make a calamity rise against you from within your own house. I will take your wives and give them to another man before your very eyes, and he will sleep with your wives under this very sun. So this is the punishment for the adultery side of it, the rape-adultery thing. The first part was punishment for the murder of Urias. Now you're going to have the sword in your house. The punishment for the adultery, the rape-adultery, is now somebody's going to take your wives and rape-adultery them. And do it in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will make this happen in the sight of all Israel and in broad daylight. David is busted. It's so easy for him to start doing what Adam and Eve did. Oh, yeah, my wife gave me the fruit. And Eve is like, oh, you know, it was Mr. Snake all along. Right? It could be like Saul, who also hems and haws a little bit before finally coming down and saying, I've sinned. David said to Natan, I stand guilty before the Lord. It's not the English's fault. That's a great translation. But in Hebrew, it's two words. Chatati Ladonai. I have sinned before God. Which, all of a sudden, they just became the two greatest words in the whole Bible. Natan had a really good thing going for him for a little while there with this Atahish. You are the man. But all of a sudden, David, rather than rationalizing, hemming, hawing, blaming anybody, stands before God and the prophet of God and just says, Chatati Ladonai. And Natan replied to David, The Lord has remitted your sin, you shall not die. This is a tremendous, tremendous moment for David's career. On the one hand, he's broken. He's going down and he knows it. On the other hand, he sets out the model of repentance, which becomes one of the all-time great models of repentance. And those two tracks go with him for the rest of the story. What happens in the next eight chapters, it's amazing. Here you have ten chapters in the Bible devoted to David's sin, prophetic condemnation, and aftermath. Ten chapters, from chapters 11 through 20. That's, That's the whole story. And we, as the readers of the prophets, understand all of that. What happens in the very next chapter, in 13, is David's oldest son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar, and then, has, and then gets killed by Tamar's brother, Avshalom. Okay, so you have another rape situation. In this case, it's rape incest. And then, dead. Then, Avshalom, that same son, moments later, he revolts against David altogether, tearing the country in half. Israelites fighting other Israelites. It's a whole big mess. Lots of people are killed, of course. Avshalom goes to David's concubines and rapes them in a public display of rebellion and rapes them. And then by the end of the story, he is killed. The point is David committed rape, adultery, should have been killed. 
But instead of being killed, he gets to watch his sons do these things, and they get killed. So the family has completely fallen apart. The nation is completely falling apart. And then after Avshalom's rebellion, some other guy named Shevab and Bichri, he revolts, and he even says that we should have a divided kingdom again. And his battle cry in source number six is that a scoundrel named Sheva ben Bichri, a Benjaminite, happened to be there. He sounded the horn and proclaimed, We have no portion in David, no share in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, O Israel. And he tries to create a rebellion, so Yoav goes after him, and that's the end of him also. But at the end of the day, this battle cry of who needs the house of David became the same rally cry two generations later when the northern kingdom seceded from the Davidic dynasty. They used exactly these words. When the northern kingdom seceded, meaning there was David who continued to reign, then his son Solomon reigned over the whole kingdom. Right after Solomon's death, the kingdom fell apart. And the northern kingdom's rally cry was this rally cry. We don't need to be associated with the house of David anymore. And that's how the main frame of the story runs in in the book of Samuel. Just go back now to source five, read the two verses that we didn't read. There's one bright ray of light coming out of all of this story. And that is that David consoled his wife Bathsheba. We're back in source five, just verses 24 and 25. He went to her and lay with her. She bore a son and named him Solomon. The Lord favored him. And he sent a message through the prophet Natan. He was named Yedidiah, the instance of the Lord. Okay, that's all we hear about Solomon in this book. He's going to become incredibly important in the book of Kings. Come January 27th, we'll have a lot to talk about with him. But before we get to January 27th, in the couple minutes that we have, I just want to wrap up this shiur. There are three lessons that I think we learned from this story, loud and clear. One was already established by Rabbi Yehudaya Hasid. You don't need to be as smart as Rabbi Yehudaya Hasid, who lived in 12th century Germany, to say, lust is a potent force, and it can affect anybody. Right? People need to be careful. This story teaches that the great and righteous David, because of this, this trait of lust, Made a terrible mistake, and that led to trouble. So he understands right off the bat, okay, that's a pretty easy lesson that one learns from this story, and that couples with when somebody has power, then that simply magnifies his ability to do something like this. Right? That's, that's lesson number one. Lesson number two, which a Barbanel trumpets loud and clear, is the message of repentance. That David is a broken man after this. Anybody, again, anybody who thinks he got away with his sins is gravely mistaken. His whole family falls apart. The kingdom falls apart. He suffers brutally. And what's interesting is that he's aware that every terrible thing that's happening in the story is in part because of him. He understands the divine retribution part of it. When Amnon rapes his sister, he's just lusting after her. He's not thinking about, oh yeah, David deserves it. He doesn't know what we know. He's just a sick guy. But... You know, he's a sick guy. You know who else was sick? One of the Henrys. One of the, there was, I think it's at the Met. There's some painting of the bedroom of one of the French kings where the painting that he wanted to see before he went to sleep was the painting of some, it's a great painting actually, of unknown raping Tamar. I'm like, what a sick king. This is what he wants to look at before he goes to bed and when he wakes up in the morning? What's wrong with this person? But, but it was a good painting. I think the artist did, a, did justice to the horror of the scene. But in the meantime, Amnon and Tamar are just doing what they want to do. Avshalom wants to seize the throne. He doesn't know about the Bathsheba story. He's also a terrible, terrible guy. But David knows what we know, which is this is cast as punishment in part for what David has done. So Barbanel says that David's brokenness through the story is something that everybody can learn from because the point is that most of us don't sin as bad as this, I hope. And, but we all have some things that we can improve on. The fact that David was able to confront his errors should teach us to 
confront, confront ours. And I think the most important lesson is that this single-handedly demonstrates the unbelievable honesty of, of, of Tanakh. It, it demonstrates that the prophets had a standard, which is, here's God's ethical system, and absolutely nobody, not even the most beloved person in our history, is above that. There's no ambiguity in the story. It's just told brutally. David did terrible things. The prophet condemned him severely. And then really bad things happened to him, his family, and the kingdom as a consequence of all of that. So we're winding down the book of Samuel. It teaches us what monarchy does. And it teaches us how the world works in the biblical scheme. Which is, again, it starts with instability. There's all kinds of frayed ends. There's all kinds of... It's hard to bring people together. Righteousness can bring people together. And a righteous king can really bring people together. The righteous king is the best ability of all because of all of his power and his, his influence. But if he abuses that power and influence and sins, well then, that's the worst thing that could happen to a kingdom. And that's what happens over here. So what God and what the people in Samuel were busy arguing back a couple of weeks ago, Samuel was saying kingship is terrible. It's the religious nightmare. Well, sometimes it is. When the kings are sinful, it's the worst thing that can happen. But the people are right too. The people were saying we need a king because the king can help us so, so, so much. When the king is righteous, the king helps us so, so, so much. Right? David's help for the kingdom was immeasurable during the 10 good chapters that he had over there. So two things happen by the end of the, the book of Samuel. One is, kingship is now a reality. Right? There's, now, there's a Davidic dynasty, it's going to endure, it's going to last through the entire biblical period. Kingship is a reality. And the other thing is, the institution of prophecy has now established itself. Right? Nathan is a prophet who isn't a king. We had Moses was a prophet king, Joshua was a prophet king, the judges were quasi-prophet kings, Samuel was the last of those. He was the prophet king. He was the prophet of God. He was the religious leader of the people who also ran the country. Samuel realized when the people requested a monarchy that there was going to be a break. And so he was busy having his prophet school, training prophets to keep the kings in line. This is the first time that we see that his work, his work paid off. I have no doubt that Natan might have been in that school at some point in time, probably even the star pupil. And Natan, the prophet, the first independent prophet who's coming to be the religious conscience of the king, teaches the kingship. It better watch it, because God is always watching. And if, it's, if the king is righteous, David does amazing, amazing things. If the king is not, better watch out. Those prophets will be there. And this brings us to the end of, of this branch of the series. I first want to thank KJ, Kehilat Yishu, when we moved to the east side just over six months ago, and it's just become such a fabulous home for me, for my family, I, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed being part of the KJ community altogether. And we get to pray here in this room with the Sephardic Minyan. It's been great. I also want to thank again the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals, and I thank all of you who have joined, become members. Uh, you know, it's it's such an important thing that we're trying to do. KJ is now our New York base, but a couple of weeks I'm going to Nashville. I go all over the place, you know, as, as a scholar in residence in our effort to just promote a certain type of Judaism that we think is reasonable. You know, fair-minded and very faithful to tradition and at the same time one that has a humanistic component to it. And so we're doing a lot of good work and thank you for all of you who are coming here and they're co-sponsors of this series. And the thing that I want to thank the most is, is you. When I, before, I, before this series started, I was talking to a couple of people and I have to say there were some naysayers saying, oh, you know, it's a weeknight, who's going to come? And I'm like, look, the, my job is always put it out there. I think that there's a thirst for this kind of, of 
kind of learning and the people who I've met in the KJ community already, I felt like we would be, we would be off to a good start. And I've been delighted. And the, the level of learning that we have, the fact that over 60 people have participated regularly in this series, it's, it's, it's meant a lot to me. It really is something I've been looking forward to. And I thank all of you for your participation, both in Shior, and sometimes I don't have time for every comment. I'm sorry. But, but people have been emailing me. This is the kind of stuff that's really what it's all all about. So thank you all for making such an effort. Just a reminder, I mean, I'll send you emails also about this. January 27th, we pick up again, and the next eight-part series will have the books of Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And also, by the way, in terms of tell your friends, it's, oh, it's never too late to join this. Sometimes that's a funny bird about adult education. Sometimes people feel, oh, I've missed a few, that's it, I'm done. You can tell them, you're here, you understand that each class really does stand on its own. That's how I teach adult education, and that each book certainly stands on its own. People shouldn't feel, since I missed the first wave, I'm now done for two years. Tell people that they can come, and they're always welcome to join us. With that,